Amen. Everybody happy tonight? All right. How many of you ready to get in the book of Revelation? Amen. How many of you are glad it's me teaching it, not you? All right. No, it's an incredible book, and I want us to stand together, and I know we're doing a lot of standing tonight, but this will be the last time until I'm done. But I want us to pray over this. Um, you know, I was uh, um, co-hosting to Every Man an Answer tonight before church, so we were answering questions from around the country for an hour, and what is coming up more and more is this sense that people are saying, what in the world is going on? What is up? Because something's up. Something is not normal, typical. Nations are being shaken. The enemy seems to be running everywhere. But then if you do enough checking, you find that God is doing incredible things as well. Amen. And so I think if there was ever a time that the book of Revelation is relevant, it's always been relevant, uh, 20 centuries old and it's still red hot. I mean, 20 centuries old and it's still red hot. Amen? And so um, I want us to really pray that not only does God open our own eyes as we get into this book, uh, but that when it goes out right now on streaming video, later on radio, and now we're on pray.com, an incredible site. So you want to look us up there, pray.com. And what is that other one we just got on? Where'd Brendan go? We're always getting on something new. I can't even keep up with it. What's it called? Nobody knows. We just know we're on it. I'll tell you next time. <laughs> but uh, we're, we're getting everywhere, and we're taking the Word everywhere. And I think people want the Word of God more than ever. They want the Word of God. They, they want to know, what does the Bible say about the times I'm living in? So I want us to pray. I want us to really pray right now for divine illumination. And I want to encourage you that as you have begun this series tonight, see it through to the end. Make a commitment. I'm going to be here Wednesday nights to the end because there's a blessing on learning this book. And so, Lord, we just come to you right now in Jesus' name and we pray that you would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to our souls, that, Lord, you would edify us and strengthen us and help us to be anchored in the Word of God like never before. Lord, right now, let us be a people that bring answers and not question marks, exclamation points and not question marks. Lord, our culture is dying in front of our eyes. They need the word of God. Help us to be exporters of that word, carriers of that word, contagious with that word. We thank you right now for the great teacher of the church, the Holy Ghost of the living God, being here to give us uh, open eyes and open hearts. Thank you for teaching us, Lord. We praise you for it and bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's a new world coming. <clears throat> you can be seated. There is a new world coming. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction, and then I'm going to at least get through chapter one tonight. And uh, we're going to move along in this book at a pretty good pace, probably a little quicker than I've ever done it. But we're not going to um, dilute it or water it down or lose the substance of it at all, because we want to extract everything we can out of this book. Now, the incredible book of Revelation, as you know, 
came to the beloved disciple John. In his older years, the aged apostle had been banished to a lonely island called Patmos because he was witnessing about Jesus. So they took this old man and they banished him to a really rough geographical location. Patmos was located in the Aegean Sea around 60 miles southwest of Ephesus. So keep that in mind. Uh, 60 miles is not far away from Patmos to Ephesus, all right, and 100 miles east of Athens. So you've got this old apostle. He's the only survivor. He is the survivor of all the disciples, all the apostles. The rest of them have been martyred. And he's watched all of his friends, all of his close cohorts, be martyred, killed, murdered for the testimony of Christ. And he alone has survived. By the will of God. Pappas was a tiny island, get this, about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. I'm bored already, right? That's not even good enough for a bike ride, all right? Uh, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, barren of trees, and very rocky. So there was nothing, this was no vacation resort, right? This This was not a place where you wanted to spend much time. Little, teeny, little rock in the middle of the sea. Now, because of John's connection to it, just for the record, Patmos today is a destination for Christian pilgrimage. I would love to see it myself. Visitors can see the cave where John is said to have received the revelation. It's called the Cave of the Apocalypse. And several monasteries on the island are dedicated to St. John. Amen? Now, at the time of John's banishment, he's around 92 years old. How how many of you would like to be banished at 92 and sent to a rock island, right? The early fledgling church at this time, this is very important, was experiencing vicious persecution. Rome was an anti-Christian state that ruled the known world. The Roman government was godless, perverted, immoral, cruel, barbaric. Though they were very educated in some ways, the the fullness of the fallen nature was manifested in this government. Not only was it godless, but it was infested with uh, anti-Christian religions, fables, myths, mythologies. Uh, The Romans simply took the Greek gods and made them Roman gods and gave the Greek gods new names under Rome. And that's all they did. They switched mythologies or they switched names and stuck with the same mythology. But there was others and they were very depraved. The lunatic Emperor Nero, who was the one ruling Rome when John wrote this, had gone so far as to burn Christians in his garden as human torches. He needed light. So he dipped them in pitch and put them on stakes and lit them on fire to burn alive to light his garden. He was a lunatic. He was demon-possessed. He was a monster. It was a time of great distress for God's people. And the revelation was delivered to bring them comfort and assurance that God was in control. I want you to keep that in mind. 
because the church was in dire straits. Many Christians were wondering, where's God? Why is he letting this happen to us? Why doesn't he intervene? Why does Nero continue with these monstrosities with impunity? Where, where is the sovereign God? Where is his help? And so part of the reason for the revelation was to let the Christians know that God was still in control. Amen? The Bible records that John was spiritually translated by the Spirit of God and given a succession of visions so incredible that they have boggled the minds of thinkers throughout the ages. How many of you ever read part of Revelation and it boggled your mind? It's like, what in the world is this? What am I reading here? All right? As we study this amazing book, here's some things we're going to see. Jesus Christ as Lord and Master of all history. History is his story. Amen? We're going to see an accurate prediction of the rise and fall of world empires. We're going to see an incredible cosmic battle between forces of light and darkness. No book in the Bible, maybe Daniel being the exception, pulls back the veil And allows us to see straight into the reality of spiritual warfare. Being waged mightily in the spiritual world. We're going to see 21 terrible judgments falling on a Christ-rejecting world. The trumpet judgments. uh, The seal judgments. The bowl judgments. 21 in all. Seven apiece. We're going to see a future evil, anti-Christian, anti-Christ society set up by the most diabolical, wicked ruler to ever set foot on the world stage, the Antichrist. We're going to look at 666. And I'm going to give you some fresh thoughts on that. We're going to watch the world descend into worldwide socialism. That's what's going to happen. There will be the establishment of a one-world economy, one-world religion, and a one-world political system. You wonder why globalism is so hot today? So many political leaders wanting globalism, wanting uh, uh, every nation's um, um, borders to dissolve away because they want one world and one world order. You have many political rulers in our time, including uh, President Biden right now, have used the phrase one world order. Do you know that John saw that coming way back when? That is amazing. We're going to see the total destruction of Antichrist and his world system. We're going to see the worst war in the history of the world. It's going to make WW2 and 1, any other war, look like playtime. The War of Armageddon. We're going to see the glorious return to Christ as the Lion of Judah. We're going to see a final brief rebellion against him. And then we're going to see the final great white throne judgment of sinners. And then we're going to see a new Jerusalem and a new world coming. Amen. So this is really, really going to be rich. Now, what I want to do is I want to go ahead and read, uh, just go right through the first chapter Just reading it out loud, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to get into it, I'm going to unpack it, and we're going to finish at least that tonight. Uh, It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelations 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Go back, I wasn't done. There we go. 
things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel. I wasn't done. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, Okay. Can we go back to two? Okay. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Verse three. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now look what the promise is. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Everybody say he's always been. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Can we thank God for that? And has made us kings and priests. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, you're a king and a priest. Now now tell him I'm not puffing you up. I'm, I'm telling you what the blood did. Okay. Because he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord. Who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Now this is Jesus talking. All right. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see right in a book and sent it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. This wasn't the meek and lowly Lamb of God walking around. This is the resurrected Messiah. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. We're not going to need the sun in heaven because the light coming off of Jesus is going to light up that world. Amen? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. I am he who was, uh, he who lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write the things that you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. 
The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And out of the stump, oh, let me just stop right there. We're done. Now, that's the first chapter. Now, let me just unpack it for us. The main theme of John's revelation, the main theme is the certainty of Christ's second coming. That's the main theme. It's found in 1, one verse 7 that we just read. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth are going to mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So in verse 19, John is instructed by Jesus, write the things that you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now notice with me, he said past tense, present tense, future tense. Write what you have already seen, past tense, the things which are right now, present tense, and the things that are going to take place prophetically after this, future tense. That verse gives us the main key to the Revelation's purpose. The book of Revelation's purpose is to reveal things past, things present, and things future. Now with that in mind, the first three chapters cover the things that had been and the things that were present. That's the first three chapters. When we go over the first three chapters, we're going to see the things that have already taken place, the things that are right then happening at the time that John wrote it. But the final 19 chapters deal with things to come. So the, the Revelation is primarily a prophetic book. Amen? 19 chapters out of 22 are prophecy. Amen. Amen. Another key to understanding it is the revelation is primarily chronological with a few exceptions. It follows a steady sequence of events. One thing leads to the next that leads to the next. And that's the way the book of Revelation lays out. So it's not hard to follow. It's hard to interpret some of what you read, but it's sequential. It's chronological. It makes sense as you just follow along. There's only a, a few exceptions. Let me give you a couple of examples. We read of Jesus being born in chapter 12, yet he's exalted in chapter 5, and he's walking in the midst of his churches in chapter 1. Well, that's not sequential. John's jumping around as God showed it to him. Another exception would be this. The beast who attacks God's two witnesses in chapter 11 isn't even brought into existence until chapter 13. You with me? Y'all are looking at me with glazed eyes. Don't do that. All right? So here's the deal. John simply wrote as it came to him. But most of it is chronological and easy to follow. The revelation we're going to see constantly uses the words like or as or appeared to be or something like. That's because John is grasping for ways to describe what he's seeing. I mean, folks, he's watching a Steven Spielberg movie before there was a Steven Spielberg. So he uses pictorial language through the use of uh, metaphors and similes. For instance, if we were watching an Amtrak train speed by, we'd say something like, it shot by me like a bullet. 
like is a simile. Or watching a firework display, we might say, well, that skyrocket fell like a shooting star. That's a simile. You're using like or as to compare one thing to another. And John does that a lot because he doesn't know what to make of what he's seeing. So he just has to try to connect some dots and describe it to us the best he can. He's a first century man describing 21st century events. Why should we even bother to study the Revelation? Because, you know, there's a lot of pastors who won't touch it. There's a lot of churches that say it's not relevant. Do you know there's even a, a pretty big slice of the Christian pie that claims all of it is already fulfilled? I don't know where they get that. That's impossible. But they're called preterists. Just so you a little something extra for you. A preterist believes that the revelation has already been fulfilled. And we're living in the millennium. Well, if this is a millennium, Jesus, please come back. <laughs> we should study the revelation because it's part of the Bible. Amen? No story is complete without reading the last chapter. And the book of Genesis tells us the beginning of all things. The book of Revelation tells us the ending of all things. It's a perfect book. The final chapter is the book of Revelation. It's the last chapter in God's book of 66 books. The, the Revelation is going to give us a sense of urgency. Men need to accept Christ now. Because Revelation events could begin at any time. Most of all, there's 66 books in our Bible, but only one of them promises a special blessing if you read it and study it and live according to what it says. And that's the book of Revelation. So did you know that by coming here tonight or watching online, following me, that you're going to get a special blessing? God promised it. How many of you want a special blessing? I'm just telling you what it says. Let me read it to you. Again, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy in, uh, to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. So there you go. So let's begin. All right? Revelations 1.1. This is a revelation from who, everybody? Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John. Now notice, he said this is a revelation. Now the Greek word that revelation is translated out of is apocalypsis. We get apocalypse from apocalypsis. But the Greek for apocalypse is not at all the same as what it is in English. Because when we say the apocalypse in English, we mean total destruction, chaos, you know, nuclear bombs, the ruination of the world. You know, the apocalypse is coming. But that is not what apocalypsis means in the Greek language. It means to bring to light what has previously been unknown because it was hidden. So we're getting to read something that the Old Testament saints would have given anything to see anything to read but it was hidden it was only brought to light post crucifixion and resurrection of jesus christ the book of revelation is not john's revelation it's the revelation of jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants what must soon come to pass 
So what God is doing in the revelation is he's bringing out of hiding or out of cover uh, things that had never been revealed before. So we are really, really blessed tonight to be able to read this and study it. Amen? Given to show his servants from the early church all the way up to us things which must shortly take place. Now people have read that and they go, wait a minute. He wrote that in the first century. We're in the 21st century. He said those things would shortly take place. So how can it be he said shortly and we're 21, 20 centuries down the road? How can that be? Because shortly take place is a Greek expression meaning a rapidity of execution once it starts. Once these events begin, like I told you, they happen chronologically, sequentially, like dominoes falling one after another. So they, they happen with, with rapidity, rapidly, after they begin. And so that's what that means. John lets us know that the initial target audience of the letter is the seven churches existing at the time of the writing. He calls them the seven churches in the province of Asia. He blesses them. He says, grace and peace to you uh, from the one who is and who always was and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before the throne. Now, what is the sevenfold spirit? I thought there was just one Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The seven spirits that John references are seven different manifestations or attributes that flow from God's majesty to the Messiah. We find them in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Listen to it. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch. Notice up there, capital B, branch. So this is talking about deity. Out of David's family will come a deity bearing fruit from the old root. Now listen to the the manifestation of the Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord, that's one, will rest on him. Spirit of wisdom, that's two. Spirit of understanding, that's three. Spirit of counsel, that's four. Spirit of might, that's five. Spirit of knowledge, that's six. And the fear of the Lord, that's seven. That's the sevenfold manifestations of the Spirit of God. Next, John describes in verse 7 the second coming of Christ at the end of the ages. Behold, he is coming. I can't read this enough. Can can we just say that together? Behold, he is coming. Don't ever, ever let that go. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Amen. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. That means the Jewish people. And all the tribes of the earth will gaze upon him and beat their breasts and mourn and lament over him. Even so must it be, amen, so be it. When Jesus Christ returns, everybody, which will be the final climactic event in the history of the world, judgment will commence. And those who pierced him, the Jews, and all the tribes of the earth, the nations and the peoples and the ethnicities, will mourn, literally beat themselves. Why? Over what they missed. Because when they see him, they will know it was true. Oh, no. It was true. I should have listened to that witness, that evangelist, that preacher, that friend, that parent, that child. 
and they beat themselves because of what they missed. In verse 10, he describes how the visitation that came to him took place. He says, I was in the spirit wrapped in his power on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice like the calling of a war trumpet. And the voice he heard then instructed him, I want you to write in a book what I'm showing you and send it to these seven churches. I want, and how many of you are thankful he wrote it in a book? Amen. You're holding the result of it in your hand. Amen. Now, the seven churches he names were near Patmos, as I've already said. John was only a rowboat's journey away from their location in Greece. He wasn't far. He was just exiled. Contrary to what some people think, the people in these churches were not all believers, like it is today. Churches are full of people, some saved, some not. Yeah. And there's pulpits of saved preachers and preachers that have never been saved. They're just pontificating because they're good with words. They can draw a crowd. They like the intellectual aspects of it, but they've never been born again. They have a form of godliness, as Paul predicted, but they deny the power thereof. They were like our churches today, these seven churches in Asia Minor, just the same. And Jesus sends the equivalent of a postcard to every one of these churches with a warning to the lost among them and correction and encouragement to the saved. When John turned to see the source of the voice, he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a a son of man, capital S, capital M, so this is deity, clearly not an angel, because you don't capitalize an angel, you capitalize only deity, like a son of man, clothed with a robe which reached to his feet and with a girdle of gold about his breast. He was given a vision, an open vision of the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ who has ascended back into glory to the right hand of the Father. He's given a vision of him. Now let's take what he saw. The lampstand John mentions was a lamp holder. We've seen them in pictures of Old Testament stuff, the tabernacle and the temple. They had seven spiral extensions protruding out of it, each extension containing oil and a wick. And his description of the risen Son of God is awesome and stunning. He says he was clothed with a garment down to his feet. He was girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, gold symbolizes deity in the Revelation. This golden band was like a thick belt around his waist. A similar thing is described by Paul in the armor of God. What did he say? Gird yourself with the belt of truth. I got a call uh, tonight on, to every man an answer from somewhere in the country, somebody wanting to know, how do you put on the armor of God? How do you put on the armor of God? The armor of God is not something you recite. It's truth you walk in. Okay? So when you say, I'm going to put on the belt of truth, that means I am going to to gird myself with the truth of God's word. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to assimilate it. I'm going to apply it. I'm going to obey it. It's going to become a part of my life. And when we do that, we're walking with that belt of truth intact. Revelations 1.14 
His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. Now, remember the use of like and as, because it's happening everywhere here. John is using the word like to describe the bright whiteness and the flaming eyes as best he could. Now, white hair depicts wisdom. Glory to God. It's happened to me more and more. So if you got white hair, you need a hallelujah. That's, that's wisdom. <laughs> Fire is a picture of cleansing and purging and purifying judgment. So his eyes were cleansing. His mere gaze had a purifying effect. You know, Jesus, who walked around on earth with dark hair, he was just another... He, he, listen, he was not a looker. He wasn't Hollywood handsome. Jesus got lost in the crowd physically. Isaiah said there's no beauty that we would desire him. That's why he was able to walk through a crowd and, and, and dodge his persecutors that wanted to harm him because he looked like everybody else. But now, white hair, flaming eyes, feet like brass, a voice like thunder. Then verse 15 says, his feet were like fine brass, like refined in a furnace. His voice like many waters. Brass or bronze are used in scripture to symbolize strength. So so he's, he's symbolizing, he's personifying strength with the bronze-colored feet. His voice, many waters, it was commanding. It was awesome. It was like the sound of a mighty waterfall. Stand at the Niagara. Niagara Falls and listen to the roar. And that's what Jesus' voice sounded like in his resurrected condition. John observes that the risen, glorified Messiah is holding something. And this is very curious. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, seven stars. Stars is from the Greek word asteros. Asteroid, you get it? Asteros. And they represented the seven messengers, either the seven messengers or pastors of these churches, or angels sent to them, one or the other, to whom John was initially addressing the revelation, these stars, because in a minute he's going to call them angels, angelos, which means messenger. So it's either the leadership of the church or angels that were posted over the seven churches. The two-edged sword that went out of his mouth, we know what that is. That depicts judgment, particularly when he returns to judge the world, because when he does return and every eye sees him, he is going to commence with judgment. Jesus laid his... Now, it says, when John saw all this, he fainted. Don't tell me that you, Jesus came into your bedroom and the two of you had a dance. Please, don't tell me that. Because if you ever encounter Jesus anywhere, you are going to be on the ground. You are going to be like somebody dead. I hate the way he's marginalized and anthropomorphized, which means 
made into a human like us. He's not. He's God. He's the resurrected Lord of glory. When John sees all this, he faints, and so would I. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But Jesus laid his right hand. Jesus was right-handed. That just came to me. That's free. You can go check it out. He laid his right hand on John and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm not here to scare you to death. I'm here to bless you. Then in verse 18, Christ reveals two keys that are in his possession. I am, he says in verse 18, I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold two keys, the key of death and the key of hell. Keys represent absolute control and authority. You can't go into a room that is locked without the key. you got to have a key. And Jesus wrested the keys of death and hell from the devil. And now he says, now I'm holding them because I destroyed him by my shed blood. Hallelujah. No longer the devil in control of death and hell. But the resurrected Christ now holds the keys. And as already mentioned, the key and the outline to the entire book is in verse 19. Write the things you've seen, the things that are right now, and the things that will take place after this. Past, present, future. The glorified Messiah is informing John that he is about to be shown the future. The things which will take place after this. Can I tell you, folks, something? There's a lot of religious books in the world. There's the Quran. There's the Book of Mormon. There is um, so many. I mean, I, I could. There, there's all kinds of uh, Indian deity books and different Middle Eastern religions and Far Eastern religions and all kinds of religious books. Uh, but none of them dare to predict the future with any specificity at all except the Bible. Did you know that? Just the Bible. Book of Mormon, the Quran. You, you name the book. Buddha. Buddha never predicted the future. Buddha, Buddha didn't even know where he was half the time. So what I'm saying is the Bible that you hold in your hand is the only book that dared to predict the future with incredible specificity over and over and over again. One quarter of your Bible is prophecy. And the book of Revelation is 19 chapters of it out of 22. 19 chapters. The first chapter ends with a summation and explanation of the things John had just seen. Let's finish it. Revelation 120, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels. There you go. Angelos. That's the Greek word for messenger, angel. Angels were known as messengers. So the seven stars that you saw, John, the, the Asteros, those were angels, messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands you saw 
are the seven churches. So you have the messengers and you have the churches. Please catch this. I want you to see how very present tense Jesus is to his churches. He said, and we're about to see in in chapter 2 and 3, he knows exactly what's going on with every one of them, with x-ray vision. Let me just deal with the first one, and we'll close tonight, because I know I've given you a lot of information. The next two chapters, chapter 2 and 3, the risen Messiah has a direct word for every single church. I, and I got to tell you, studying this, I said, I wonder what he would say to me about turning point. And I'm going to tell you, it scares me just because I fear the Lord. What does he see? What does he know? Um, how would he assess it? I'm not asking for it. But it humbles me and it puts the fear of the Lord in me. Because, because we're about to see he's got his finger on the pulse of every one of them dead or alive. So, the first one is in Ephesus. And the first one was known as the loveless church. We notice that Jesus' first comments to them are positive. He says in Revelations 2, verse 2, so we're starting in Revelations 2, I know all the things that you do. Oh, let's just stop right there. Everybody say, help me, Lord. He says, I know everything you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. I wonder how many churches do. Grabbing hands with the world like they are these days. But notice that Jesus commended them for not tolerating evil. So where in the world do we get off that we can't address evil in the culture? Because Jesus commends them for not tolerating evil. Did you read the same thing I did? Yes. So he sees hard work. He sees patient endurance. And he sees we're not tolerating evil people. No. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not false apostles. Anybody, anytime anybody says to me, I'm an apostle, first thing I want to do is I want to look behind them and see how many churches they've built. And, and I want to, I'm tempted, I don't do it, but it would be very cantankerous of me to do it. But sometimes I want to say to them, define apostle for me. Define, because let me tell you, oh, I'll probably get in trouble here. I do this every time, but here we go. I don't believe there's any more capital A apostles. I believe there's small a apostles. Apostolos is the Greek word. It just means sent one. That's all it means, sent one. But the 12 that Jesus called out and chose and anointed and appointed, and many of them ended up writing the Bible, they were capital A. So these people that go around throwing that title around, I'm so tempted to say to them, define it for me. What does that mean? Because notice here, they tested people who said they were apostles, and they weren't. 
Just throwing this out. You have discovered they are liars. Who said that? Jesus did. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. How many of you want to and be able to say that about you? You patiently suffered and you didn't quit. Come on, you didn't quit. Jesus commends them for not quitting. So their pluses were hard work, patient endurance, intolerance of evil, discernment, and patient suffering without quitting. But the Lord's next statements are corrective. Verse 4, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other like you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove, ooh, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. What's the lampstand? I believe it's the presence and the blessing. And if we could say the divine ordination of the Lord on a house of worship, a church. And do you know that I've seen churches that lost their lampstand and they never even knew it? This is heavy stuff. This is why I I can handle only one church tonight. I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Now notice, they hadn't lost their first love. They had left their first love. Did you catch that? You've left your first love. What was the first love? Their passion for the Lord. The love they had walked in when they were first saved. Remember when you first got saved? You loved Jesus. Oh, Jesus this and Jesus that. You witnessed everything that moved. You were in church every time the doors were open. You were red hot, zealous for God. You remember that? We call it the cage stage. Right? And and I love the cage stage. Give me a thousand people in the cage stage. You know, instead of, you know, sour and bitter and half lukewarm and no no give me people that are about half crazy for Jesus all right but they lost their first love and Jesus saw it just you know he he knew the church and he saw it and here's what I believe happened they essentially got so busy with the work of the Lord they somehow got disattached from the Lord of the work they got so busy with the work of the Lord that they forgot the Lord of the work. You can make the work of the Lord your God. Oh, you can. I know because I've done it. Oh, ministry was an idol to me. That's hard for me to say, but it was. I lived, ate, breathed, slept. Everything was ministry. Everything. But I've noted You can get so involved in the work of the Lord that you begin to associate it with the Lord of the work, but that's not him. The work of the Lord is only what he does. It's not him. We need to be sure we're always focused on the person Christ, not just what he does. The miracles, the salvations, you know, the answered prayers, all of that. That's all what he does, but that's different from who he is. And Jesus is telling them, You've gotten somehow distant from me. You're doing so many things right, but you've gotten distant from me. What was the solution? Repent and return. 
I'm so glad there's an answer. Repent and return. I'm going to give you a nugget, and we'll close tonight. Here's the nugget. All ministry, all ministry should flow out of love and devotion for the Lord Jesus. Not for fame, not for money, not for power. But only because you love him. And that's what's going to produce the works you get rewarded for. Gold, silver, precious stones. I'm going to stop there. And we're going to finish two and three next week. You don't even want me to stop. I can tell, but I want you to stand. I don't want to give you too much in one night. How many of you enjoyed that tonight? Amen? Amen. And I'll tell you, this is going to be a rich, 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 rich study. Oh, yeah. And it's going to, it's going to prime you for the return of Christ. Amen? Can we lift our hands to the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Can you say with me, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Help me, Lord, to serve you out of love for you and to never confuse what you do with who you are. To never make an idol out of what you do, but to always keep my love for you intact in Jesus' name. Amen.